Right, good morning, friends. Let's uh, flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Quick announcement. <clears throat> uh, the uh, ladies' Bible study is this Friday at 6.30. So there you go. If you're a lady and you like studying the Bible, Friday at 6.30. Okay. It seems a little cliche to say, but uh, I really enjoy 1 Corinthians. <laughs> uh, I enjoy it because anytime that we have, how would you say, I don't know if you want to call it uh, equations or plain language or whatever you'd like to say, I just, just appreciate in the scriptures where you, someone just lays out, this is how it works. You know what I mean? You know, this is, this is just how life works. And, and one of the things that we've been, as we're going through Corinthians that we've talked about and, and really what the entire introduction is about is that there's two types of wisdom, right? And wisdom is, a, is applying knowledge correctly, right? So uh, to give an example of that, uh, my wife, Tam, she just got this new, uh, it's like a, a, a I, don't, I don't know what you call it, honestly. It's this woven thing and it's round, and you, you can put it on a table, or it's a hot plate thing. I don't know, like, it's, like a, it's like the mitt, but it's not for your hand, it's for the table. So you put hot stuff on it. And it's, it's kind of woven, it's kind of cool, it's, you know, got all these colors on it. And, uh, but it's got little holes in it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't know, like woven stuff does. This is what you need visual aids, you know? It's like, just imagine a woven thing that's like, it's not even like crochet. I don't know, it's like wound. Anyway, and so... I had bacon cooking in the oven, because that's how we do it. If you've never tried it, 350, it's amazing. Anyway, and you know bacon, like it's, it's like raw, good, rock hard. And that seems to be like a 15-second window. So I opened the, the, the oven, and I'm looking around for a pot holder, and I just that thing's there. And I saw the holes in it, and I thought, surely I will be okay. And so I reached in, you know, and I grab it, and, and I, you know, I wasn't okay. And, and, and I burnt my finger, and as a mature male, I threw the thing on the ground, and I was just exclaimed, I knew this would happen, right? <laughs> and yet, I'm still concerned for the bacon, so I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to get it out. But all that to say is, see, wisdom is having knowledge and then applying it in a proper manner, right? So... Me exclaiming that I knew it would happen showed just how unwise I was acting. I knew very well what happens when you pick up hot things with things that have holes in them. It exposes your skin, and then you burn, right? But I didn't exercise wisdom. I just went ahead with something I knew would probably fail, hoping that it would not. Does that make sense? And I think that's kind of a common, you know, just roll with me. I think that happens to a lot of us. Hopefully it's not just me. Where we do things in life where we know this will probably not generate the outcome I want, but I'm going to do it because of reasons. Whatever reasons might be. It'll make me feel better. Uh, it'll turn out okay. Uh, I've tried it before. You know, whatever it might be. But we, we do things 
knowing there'll be a, probably a poor outcome. And that's what worldly wisdom is. Worldly wisdom, uh, which in general, as we've been talking about, is the idea of self-exaltation and, and, and prioritizing self, right? So the world says, you always make sure that you're taken care of. You always make sure that you get yours. You always make sure that you are uh, uh, you know, secure and so forth. Whereas Jesus comes along and he says, he doesn't say that we should try to destroy ourselves or anything like that, but he comes along and he says, hey, in a relationship, any kind of relationship, romantic, platonic, church, work, whatever, that we should esteem others as more important than ourselves. And we're like, whoa, that doesn't seem very wise to me. If I apply that to my life, that'll cause me pain. That'll be difficulty. It's much easier to shun or to destroy or to, to dominate, to try to, to get my way. You know, the world says, hey, make sure that no matter what you have to do, you get to the top and you, you, you know, make sure, whatever it might be, whatever your goal might be. Jesus comes along and he says, if you want to be part of building my kingdom, you have to take up your cross every day, the implement of death. You have to let yourself die every day that you can find my life, right? So there's these, these two different things. And so what's happening in Corinth where you have the weird sexual sin, you have the, the drunkenness at potlucks and during the Lord's Supper, you have the suing one another, all these things that are happening, you have that because the Corinthians, as Paul is laying out for us, are constantly choosing the wisdom of their world, which, which ultimately their world was idolatrous, right? When you look at the Corinthian world and the, the, uh, the Greeks and the Romans after them and so forth, it's all based on idolatry. It's, it's the, the, the desire of humans and the actions of humans has never changed. You know, in Corinth, you might go to the temple of Aphrodite and, and get a temple prostitute or involve yourself with pedophilia or, or uh, give a piece of meat or some money to this particular deity, but you did that in order that you would make your wife more fertile, right? So in essence, you served something, you gave something in order to get something, a very transactional type of thing, and that's what idolatry is ultimately, it's transactional. It's me, whether it's Moloch and I'm sacrificing my child, whether it's Asherah and I'm just sacrificing things under a pole. It, all the ancient gods that you had, those localized gods, later on localized gods are kind of eradicated and that mostly came through Greek culture because if you look in history up till uh, around the Greeks, everybody kind of had their god. Like for example, if you're familiar uh, with the Amorites, well the Amorites are from one city originally, about 6,000 years ago. And the city was uh, the city of Amur. And it did so well that over time they said, our God is really mighty. And, and because our city is named Amur and our city has flourished, then we will name our God Amur because he's blessing our city. And so then they expanded. They got massive, actually. Uh, they dominated a lot of people and they sacrificed to Amur. This we have in our English, the, the Amorites. So you have that localized God, right? Well, localized gods eventually go away because the, the Grecians stomp everyone, right? So when the Grecians stomp everyone, people start kind of decide like, oh, evidently it doesn't matter where you're from because their gods are powerful. So they start to have these kind of universal gods over the, the Greek empire and then the Roman empire. All that to say is human beings treat wisdom, deity, all these things in our natural selves as transactional. I will do this so that I might receive this. Does that make sense? So when we're looking now at wisdoms of this world, if I want to say, I'm going to go to Burger King so that I can have it my way. 
I'm going to do this so that you know, I can be one of the few good men. I'm going to do this, that. So all these slogans and wisdoms and all these things are a transactional basis that attract us where we say, I will do this or engage in this so that I can receive this thing that I want. And so it is with earthly wisdom. When, when earthly wisdom would come and say, hey, you know what? You know, spending time serving Jesus or spending time with Jesus, it's really not worth it. You're not going to get anything out of the Bible anyway. Is that, am I the only one that struggles with that thought, right? And so if I maintain that wisdom, then what I'll do is I will, I think I'm trading my time away. Oh, I'm going to skip Bible time because it'll be way better if I peruse Facebook for 15 minutes. That will be uplifting. That will prepare me for my day. That'll help me be spiritually. No, not at all. But yet we do it again and again. Whereas uh, uh, approaching godly wisdom would be something where I say, you know what, I'm going to pursue and engage something that I might be able to get something out of it. Maybe I'll help find some help to read the scripture to myself. Maybe I'll find a, a, you know, a book or a per- something like that, right? So we're, we're always, as humans, trying to get something. And, 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 and it's, it's always been that way, even down to Cain. Why did Cain give you know, lettuce or whatever? when evidently it was known what they were supposed to give. For some reason, he had something where he was not going to give what God wanted him to give, and it ultimately cost him. So as Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and now in this specific case, as we've been talking about, what's the issue? The issue is that they're making parties around Bible teachers, right? That's the first issue he's addressing. In other words, remember, they're saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, and I'm of Jesus, which feels like it should be the ace in the hole, but it wasn't. Because the problem was that they were saying, I am of these people. It wasn't, it wasn't that people were saying in Corinth, oh, I love it when Peter comes through. He's kind of a Jew's Jew, and he really shares from the, the Old Testament. I just love it. It's kind of, I love that. No, they were saying, no, I'm of Peter. I derive my identity. I derive what I believe from what Peter says. I'm of his party. And other people were saying, no, I'm of Apollos. That dude is so eloquent. It's incredible. I love it when he comes to Corinth, and he teaches us so well that whatever comes out of that dude's mouth He's the man, I'm of Apollos. And so what's happening is factions are beginning to form in the church. And we maybe not, there's probably some of that in the church universally, you know, the, the all Christians throughout uh, uh, the, the world at this point. But really, we don't usually make factions around teachers anymore. Sometimes you'll see like if it's Calvinism and you see people with t-shirts that have, uh, uh, you know, either Calvin. I know it's kind of funny because he lived back in the day, you know, when they have those big frilly collar things, and they'll have a picture of him, and sola scriptura, or they'll have a picture of, of Spurgeon, you know, we, to this day, even some of us, we want to make factions out of people and ideas that they had, and so forth. So in this last portion here, uh, or I should say in chapter 10, what we looked at uh, last week, was the idea that Paul makes the point, he says, look, we have to be executing earth, or excuse me, heavenly wisdom. Because we're all Christians and we're all building on something. Now, he specifically in chapter 10 is talking about Corinth. And he said, I laid a foundation. Because he did. He started the church in Corinth, right? He was there for 18 months. He started the church there and then he went on. So he says, look, I laid a foundation in Corinth. The foundation I laid is Christ and him crucified. It's Jesus. And he says, now, everybody there in Corinth, which we can accept because we're here at our church and and, and we believe, I think the foundation that our church shares the gospel is Christ crucified, his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, his resurrection dictating his power over sin. And now anybody who believes on him can have complete forgiveness from sin, right? That is our foundation. And so he says, just like he had laid a foundation there in Corinth, 
that everybody who is in Corinth now, every believer is now building, right? That's what he says there in, in, in 10 through uh, 17. He says every single person is building. And that's what we, we uh, I should say, we looked at two weeks ago. And the idea that if we use useful or useless things, if we use the, the wisdom of this world to try to build his church, we're told that we're building with wood, hay, and stubble. It's stuff that will not last. If I use manipulation or dominance or uh, trying to, uh, you know, uh, lure people or something like that with something other than the gospel, that's wood, hay, and stubble. So you can get people to do what you think they should do, right? We, we all know that. You can get people to do what you think they should do. We can manipulate them. We do it to children all the time. They don't hug us. We make a big frown to try to make them come hug us. Oh, I'm so sad. You know, we, we can do that to people, too. We can guilt and shame people into that. We can make, you know, statements that and it happens in churches and in, in, in us all the time where we just go, no one should watch rated R movies. So, therefore, if you watch rated R movies, God's angry with you, right? And then there's just a blanket statement. By the way, I'm not making that statement. I'm using it as an example. And so we say, you better do that, right? And then if you go to a rated R movie and I find out about it, then I shame you and go, how could you do that? Which honestly, I think is kind of one of the most shaming things you can say to someone if you really think it through. How could you do that? You're literally stating to another person, I could never do what you just did, and I can't conceive of a way that you would think that that's a good thing to do. It's kind of a wild statement. Anyway, so, so we can get people to do things, but that's not our goal, right? Our goal is to come alongside of people, help people, give people the gospel that want it. If they're not interested in it, they have the God-given right to not be interested in it, right? We're just coming along saying this is the truth, and this is what will lead to life, and, and we want to help you with that. So he comes along, and he says, look, we're all building. And so if you're using worldly wisdom, guilt, shame, dominance, whatever that manifest is, to try to build God's kingdom, he says it will burn someday. What you've built will be taken away completely. It'll be burnt from your soul. It'll be removed from other people's soul that you poisoned or I poisoned them with. And he says, but the person who does that, the bad builder, if we could put it that way, that that person will be saved. But by fire, all that will be burnt away, he says. But he says of the, the people that build with, with gold, precious stones, and silver, those people operating in and listening to and adhering to the gift of the Spirit and, and, and the fruit of the Spirit, he says those people will receive a reward, right? Completely different. Loving people, looking to people's needs, looking to people to, not, not saying we, we steer from truth. We don't steer from truth, but we speak the truth in love. Then he's going to go on, as we covered last week, and he says there in verse 16 and 17, and he's just making the point that there's this, another group, and these people destroy stuff. And he, said that, he says, look, you are God's temple, and we talked about this, that we're being built together. God's working on each one of us as individuals. It's our sanctification, the Bible calls it, meaning that we are being changed. The, the Spirit is beckoning to us, leading us, blessing us, working in us, each as individuals. And just as each of us are individuals being worked on and have the opportunity to yield to the Holy Spirit in our lives, that we come together, we are being built into a spiritual house, Peter says, so that God is pleased to dwell there. It's a metaphorical picture. That God comes in our midst, not in the building, this thing doesn't matter, but that when we get together, God says, I am in the midst of you when you gather unto my name. When we all get together and say, I'm coming together because Jesus has been part of my life and I want to be part of his, and so boom, I'm coming together with his people. You have all these promises of what is happening. But he says that there are people that are trying to destroy that. 
in, 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 here in 16 and 17. And he says, if you're destroying what God is building, then God will destroy you. It's a pretty stark statement. And the, the, the thing to remember in this case, he's, and, and again, this would be an issue of an opinion, and I'll be glad to talk afterwards. I would say that those are unbelievers because he already told us that there are believers that just use bad ways to build and they're saved, but their work is lost. And then there are believers that are using good ways to build, worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom. Then he has this second group of people that they're just there to destroy. That's all they're there to do. And we have that parable that Jesus told us about the tares and the wheat, where the, the, the good seed is the, the word, it's been planted, and then when it starts to grow up, there's tares, there's weeds that look like wheat that aren't wheat. And the workmen say, hey, should we go tear all, all the tares? And Jesus, in the parable, he says, no, because if you were to go right now and rip out all those weeds, it would even stumble, it would affect the good wheat also. And so he makes the point that at the end of the age, there will be those among us, and this is not so we can walk around and be like, are you really saved? Are you really saved? That's not for us to say. Romans 14 says, who are we to judge another man's servant? It's not our job to figure out who's saved and who's not. But what is our job is to love people. But anyway, Jesus says this. He says that at the end of the age, the angels will come and they will pull out all of those tares. And he says they're, they're bundled up like chaff and they're thrown into a fire. And then comes the harvest of the wheat, those who are truly believers. So even Jesus points out that there are those that are among us, and John said the same thing in his letters, that there are those that are among us, they're not of us for whatever reason. They just, they, they're not willing to ask for that forgiveness from Jesus. And so therefore, they're, they're here and they're existing, but they're not actually of us. So this week, we have kind of the conclusion to this huge introduction we just did. We have the conclusion kind of like now we can move forward as Christians and, and possibly as those who are not Christians, how we can move forward in our walks with Jesus and building his kingdom. So he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly, uh, excuse me, is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God, is God's. So he lays out kind of this pathway for us and we're going to kind of talk about three different things. The first thing, which I think is one of the most important things and I would say the scripture lays out as one of the most important things in our personal lives, is he said, let no one deceive himself. And again, the, the verb there, to deceive, is in the present active, which is it's like saying, don't go on deceiving yourself. Don't keep on deceiving yourself, is, is what he's saying. I think it's noteworthy. He says, don't deceive yourself. There's a, in, in, in some Christian circles, and it's, and it's based out of biblical truth, we know that there's an enemy of our soul, right? We know that, that John tells us that the whole world lies in the arms of the wicked one in his letter in 1 John. This world lies in the arms of Satan. We know that, he's, that Satan is called the God of this world. 
We know that it says that he is the, the spirit, the pneuma, literally the wind that blows in the sons of disobedience and that we were controlled by that before we got saved. We know he's the deceiver. We know he's the adversary. It's what Satan means. It's not his name. His name is Lucifer. Uh, but the, the, the title that he's often given in the, in the New Testament is Satan, which just means adversary or accuser. Right, So we don't have an issue with the idea that there's global conspiracies. I mean, I'm not going to get a tinfoil hat anytime soon. But at the same time, it's not weird to look at the world and say, huh, there's these kind of these winds that blow. There's kind of these movements that just seem to kind of carry the world. Absolutely. We, we believe that. Ephesians chapter 2 is very clear that Satan is doing that. And Satan is deceiving people too, right? But we're not talking about that right now. Because we have the Holy Spirit in us, we don't have to be deceived about certain things, about anything, really. But this, he says, don't deceive yourself, okay? So he's not saying, hey, watch out for Satan. He's big and he's bad and he's out there and he's trying to trick you. He's saying, you trick you. I trick me. Now, the interesting thing about being deceived is that when to, you know, to be deceived is to believe something that is not true, right? That's what deception is. It's that something has been built to you or given to you or you've come to believe something that is not true. It's not doubting. Doubting is doubting, right? If you're reading or looking at something, you go, oh, I don't know about this, and this is interesting, and I'm going to explore this, and I'm going to spend some time with this, and I'm going to figure this out. That's called doubting. That's actually called a reasonable human reaction to something. Right, which is completely gone from our society. We read something on Twitter and we're like, I knew it! These, 200, these 240 characters have proven evolution. You're like, well, I feel like it's a little more complicated than that. Right? I mean, but we, that's how our entire society is driven on quips, short, pithy little sayings that are supposed to completely explain issues that for the previous 6,000 years of human beings, we've not solved. So we have to be careful with that. We have to be reasonable humans that are thinking about things. That's called doubt. Deception is when you really believe something that's wrong. So the hard part about deception is that when you are deceived, you're deceived, right? You really believe it's true. You're convinced. And that's what's so rough about deception because it opens up some, some kind of a Pandora's box in a sense. Because we don't, we want to guard about, about we want to guard against being deceived, right? We do, we do, I mean, right? Now, I don't think any of us grow up like, I hope when I'm older, I believe a bunch of stuff that's not true. None of us said that as kids, right? And none of us say it now. So there's part of us to say, I will, I'm not going to be deceived, right? We, 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 and there's an embarrassment of being deceived, isn't it? You ever seen uh, like interviews from people that get out of cults or something like that? And part of it a lot of times is like, I don't know why I bought into it. I don't, I don't know why I thought that. I don't, I don't know why I went wrong with it. So there's, there's even in being deceived, there's like a, like a stigma in a society where you're like, oh, you're a moron. That's why you got deceived. And so we don't oftentimes want to admit when we're deceived. We look bad if we're deceived. There's, so there's all this stuff that goes around being deceived that really messes us when we're trying, messes with us, I should say, when we're trying to not be deceived. Because if I truly believe something that's not true, that's a big issue. But I also, at the same time, have to be secure in my beliefs. Isn't that kind of the rub? How do I be secure in my Christian beliefs? So that when someone you know, comes to me and says, why do you believe what you believe? Or someone comes out of the woodwork that maybe I even trust and they say, hey, you should continue in the dietary laws. Right? That circulated around Christianity. It still does. Literally day one of Christianity. You had parties that 
uh, the Pharisees and they got saved, saved individuals. They come into the church. They cause difficulty in the early church. They have to have a, a convention. You know, Acts 15 is about 20 years. Think about that. Acts 15 is 20 years from Jesus' resurrection. And they're still trying to decide if Gentiles can get saved. You ever think about that? Two decades. The church doesn't know if, if people who aren't Jewish can get saved. We don't really think about it that way, do we? We're just like, well, I mean, there was Pentecost, and then boom, pure Christianity happened, and then problems came in the 1960s. And you're just like, no, that is not how church, church history works. It's been an issue since day one. And so you, you have these, these weird Christian teachings, and they, they you know, evolve and devolve, and there's all sorts of things. But so how do I look, and how can I, as a person, make sure that I'm not being deceived? And this is the challenge. And so I just want to talk about three things as far as deception. Number one, the first thing to not being deceived is admitting that it's possible. This is really important. I'm not saying be open to anything that comes your way or every wind of doctrine. I am not saying that. But just know that it is possible. I have to admit in my daily walk, it is possible that I could be deceived. Right? And by admitting that, it's going to do something. It's going to allow me not to just take in every wind of doctrine, but to at least begin to do something about that. Right? And what do I do about it? How do I work in that? Or how do I help someone who is deceived? The second is this. Do your research. Consider things. You know, this, this week I got sent a, a, um, an article. And it was about um, how, um, I can't remember the title. Essentially, it was like scientists believe that people may be able to uh, feel and be conscious for 20 minutes after death. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Because death by legal de definition, is death. It's not unconsciousness, right? So I, I read the article, and, and uh, it was essentially a, I don't know, culmination of three other articles that were not medical journals. They were just other kind of like subjective articles in newspapers that were then summarized and created into this thing, right? And I thought, that's interesting. And, and one of the lines that I found the most interesting was it says, that, it says that paramedics noticed in the field on different patients' brain activity for 20 minutes. And I thought, that's really weird. Because there's no paramedic in the United States of America that carries around the equipment to check for brain waves. <laughs> that is so expensive. I worked on an ambulance for about two years, three years. It was a fire department for nine years, and you know what we never had? Stuff to check brainwaves. Because you don't care as a paramedic if there's brainwaves. You literally don't. You have a job to do, and it's to make sure that all the holes are plugged, that the wet stuff isn't leaking out, that someone is breathing, and then you go to the hospital. That's literally your job. And you have other, you have other uh, drugs and so forth that you can administer for different things, but it's... it's, it's it's ABCs. It's the basics. It's, your job is to get people to definitive care. But the point is this. This article is just making these arbitrary statements about what paramedics do. And it seemed authoritative. You know, we honestly, as medics, there's certain conditions, and it's, it's kind of funny. They're called conditions that are not conducive to life. So you have a list of protocols. And on those protocols, they're called 
conditions not conducive to life. In other words, if you have this condition, you're not going to live. That's what they are. They're not conducive to life. And I remember one time years ago, we went to, and I've been to a few, but we went to a specific shooting where a guy took a shotgun round through the ribs. Big old hole. And so we, you know what we did not do? Look for brainwaves, because we don't have the equipment to do that. What we did do is we put a heart monitor on him. And what we saw, it's called PEA, pulseless, pulseless electric activity. And so what happened was, he had no pulse, his lips were blue, he was ashen, the whole nine yards, dude is dead. But his heart is still trying to beat. But because it's been traumatized by a big old slug, it's not pumping any blood. He doesn't feel anything. He's not still alive. He's just waiting for his heart to peter down. So the whole point is this. Somebody took some articles that they thought were relevant to something that they believe, and they wrote a paper on it, and it got views. But it was completely illegitimate, derived from illegitimate sources, and, and, and of, of no help to anybody except to give people fear about what if I'm dead and you know, they cremate me or something, which that doesn't happen that fast anyway. So all the time, people share opinions and soapboxes to try to accomplish something. So our job as Christians, open to the idea that we can be deceived, is to take things and to research it and to consider it. Jesus encouraged us that he said things like that, that we ought to imitate him. He said, you know, Paul tells us that we're to be imitators of Paul as he imitates Christ. We're told by Jesus that by people's fruit, we'll be able to know where they're coming from. So from a very beginning or a very uh, uh, rudimentary or, or, or basic entrance into how to not be deceived is to choose who we trust. Not based on if they're cute enough or if they're super popular or if they have a mega church, but based on do these, what is the fruit that comes out of these people's lives? Is it love? Is it peace? Is it joy? Is it you know, long-suffering? What, what comes out of this person's life? So as Christians, our first job to, to move towards evaluation of what's, if what's being told us is a deception, we need to be looking at both ourselves and at others for the fruit coming out of their life. Here's another thing that's important for that. We need to look at, there's a weird thing in society right now. I was listening to a podcast. They talked all about this. And right now, and I don't know if it goes back in American history. Uh, you know, I wasn't there back then. I don't know when this started or how it started. Uh, the, on the podcast, they were talking about the 1960s. But we have a profound mistrust for institutions now, right? Just in general. In fact, we look at, it's a really interesting switch because for the most part in our media, if you're not part of an institution and you don't have training in that subject, all of a sudden you're the expert. And someone who is part of an institution and has had training, well, they're just kind of the great Satan because they're just trying to deceive me and protect the institution. Does that make sense? Now, are there people that are just trying to protect institutions? Sure there are. Of course there are. But why in our mind, for many of us, and I'm speaking generally, why in our minds do we suddenly have this profound mistrust for people that have education or have invested in something, and some Johnny come lately that just wants to just kind of spout something like, well, that's the expert. This guy knows. 
So that's one of the reasons. That's something that the internet has given birth to, right? That every single one of us can have a massive voice, regardless of how profoundly ignorant we might be. We can take things that are just opinions from different places, form them together, make authoritative statements, and we can deceive people with it. It's happening all the time. Now, is everything perfect in an institution? No, it's not, typically, because there's people in an institution. So wherever people go, they mess stuff up. And so it's like it comes naturally to us. But at the same time, like when you have an institution and people that have invested in their department or their side of things, they're oftentimes worth listening to, right? Uh, you have, you know, and I obviously there's there's a million names out there of men and women who have spent their whole life researching certain things for Christian theology. Theology just being what we believe about God, Christian ideas, you know these things. So we need to be open as as humans, as Christians, to consider what these people are saying and why they're saying it. In other words, when we're looking to not be deceived, because we're again to bring us back to our subject. What is our subject of, of deception here? Our subject is de- of deception, in this case, is making factions around teachers. Pe- he's calling the Corinthians deceived because they're making worldly, they're taking worldly wisdom, they're applying it in their church to try to overcome other people's factions around their teachers. They're making schisms and they're destroying God's kingdom, if you will, in that locale, they're destroying God's kingdom through destroying each other through using poor judgment. So let's let's kind of boil it down this way. If if, if I'm reading the scripture, if I'm uh, observing the fruit of those around me and and hearing to and considering those who are exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit, if I'm looking to good Bible teachers or I don't know any good Bible teachers, so I might ask the people that are exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit who, who, who they like to listen to or why they listen to this person. Or, and I might ask that person, you know, why don't you celebrate the feast or why don't you keep the law? You know, all these things that I'm doing to people that I can trust. That In this particular case, and, and as, we, as we boil it down right here, we need to, essentially he's saying, you guys need to apply those same ideas in your church and right now. And so for us on an individual level, we are called in every situation to not deceive ourselves about what will bring about the building of God's kingdom. If I have a beef with someone, I can handle it in different ways, right? I can rage at them. That's what our society says. When you look at many of the, the modern movements for equality, whether it's race or gender uh, or financial or whatever it is, a lot of the movements for equality today, which I think we would all be like, hey, we're into that, right? Like We're into equality, 100%, right? But many of those have moved to a place now where the world says by minimizing or by making less of one group, then that will gain equality for the other. You know, and this is actually a demonstrated... Uh, well, anyway, we don't have time for it. There's a lot of, if you listen to like uh, Dr. King, if you listen to like Malcolm X and a lot of those guys, they just, I don't know if you know this, a lot of their speeches are on YouTube. It's really, really interesting uh, listening. But anyway, we know biblically that suppressing one group will not elevate another, right? You, you can't get equality and agreement and love and care by suppression, It does not work, does it? Think of any relationship that you have. In any relationship that you've ever had, by suppressing another human being, did that build relationship and care and trust and love and equality, equity, if you want to put it that way, in a relationship? No. It generates anger and bitterness. It generates destruction and hurt. You cannot get, you know, James put it this way. 
the wrath of man cannot generate or perpetuate the purposes of God or the will of God. It can't do it. And so we come along as Christians and we say, no, we, we love people to equality. Now, obviously, there's a general thing in the country, and we're not talking about that, uh, or the world per se. What we're talking about is just our individual interactions. I can try to exercise this world's wisdom to find common ground, whatever you'd like to call it. I, I don't, I'm, I'm trying to think of a, uh, you know, the, I always use the coffee. Somebody, somebody cuts in front of you for the coffee, right? That might upset you. Maybe not. If you're mature, it doesn't. If you're immature like me, it might. But you know, so somebody cuts in front of you for the coffee. You have different ways to handle that, right? The world says, I don't let you cut in front of me. Because if you cut in front of me, that makes me less, right? And I will not be made less. I will have you know that I'm actually important, and I will demand that of you. And then I can move forward with that. I can say, you know what? I was next in line for the coffee, what are you doing? Why did you step in front of me with the coffee? And depending on the demeanor of that person, they might turn in like bewilderment, like, are you being serious right now? Are you seriously upset about coffee? And if I decide to walk, if I'm the person who cut in front of you and I decide to walk in the flesh, I decide to use worldly wisdom, I might turn around and go, do you have a problem? Do you want to go outside with us? We can take our coffees. Right? I escalate it in the flesh, coming from that place where I say, you know what? You're trying to exert yourself over me. I'm not having that. I will now exert myself over you. We see this play out in society all the time. That's probably the worst thing that, that Facebook brought us, is the fact that we publicly now say, this person tried to dominate me or tried to do this, but they're a garbage person. And I need you to like this statement so that you validate me and I confirm that we're friends. We are in a very bizarre time, aren't we? So what Paul is saying, no, no, no. You're at the coffee. Someone cuts in front of you and you realize you take on the attitude that Christ took on and say, I don't have to have my coffee now. I don't have to have coffee at all. You know, if God wants me to have coffee, he can work this out for me. Now, we may take certain things and consider uh, certain ways that we could dialogue with someone, but the first and foremost is we reconcile, I am not my own. That's godly wisdom. That I can be crucified with Christ, and this person can do that for me. Now, you don't even have to be a Christian to do that, do you? You can observe even as an unbeliever in society, when one person humbles themselves, it's incredible what that does. The Proverbs say this, a gentle word turns away wrath. It's one of Solomon's Proverbs. So even as an unbeliever, you know, ironically, when I worked at Coastline Christian Fellowship, uh, they were, you guys ever see that movie, Into the Wild? Of course you haven't. It's rated R. I'm just kidding. No, it's, it's, they filmed Into the Wild. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, before I was a Christian, even though it came out after. But these, you know, this, I had a time machine. So they, they filmed part of that in Olney. And so the, the director came well, I shouldn't say the director came. The, the director's representative came, and it was uh, Sean Penn. So his representative came and said, hey, we're, we're filming this, this thing here, and, um, and we'd like to use your parking lot. This is way, taking way longer than I thought it would. Anyway, they paid me a lot of money to sit there, so it was glorious. And there's actually a lot of other cool things. They had this incredible truck with like all this food. It was amazing. But anyway, <laughs> that's beside the point. I got to eat there. But, I, you know, I was going up to get coffee, and Sean Penn just stepped right in front of me. So I punched him. No, I'm just kidding. So, 
Sean Penn, who doesn't seem to have a whole lot of scruples about Jesus, did something crazy. He just turned around and went, oh, I'm sorry. Why don't you get coffee? And I was like, that's pretty wild, because you're Sean Penn, which in the grand scheme of things means nothing, but you're a super rich dude who's in charge of this whole movie set, and you cut in front of me to get coffee, and I'm just some scrub that works at a church, and you got out of the way and let me get coffee. So I don't think there was any like giant act of the Holy Spirit there. The dude just humbled himself. And then guess what? We had peace. <laughs> right? Nobody got mad. Everybody was cool. The point is this. By exercising godly wisdom, or just, if you want to call it even moral wisdom in that, in that context, it will generate the things that God is looking to generate. And so Paul is saying, don't deceive yourself. Don't ever think for any of us that we can be part of building God's house and use this world's wisdom to do it. It will not work. We can't dominate and manipulate and guilt and shame people into the kingdom. We cannot. We can invite, we can encourage, we can admonish, which means to bring alongside. We can do that. And when people don't want it, it's okay, right? Because we're not their judge. We're not there to make them. Jesus isn't making them, right? Anybody here ever seen Jesus appear and force someone to not see a movie or something like that? I've never seen it. We don't need to try to do that. We always invite. The Spirit invites. We invite. We want to do that. So if we're going to be those that are helping others and are not deceived ourselves, it's going to be up to us to do and to exercise the wisdom of the Spirit of God. And there's this warning here. Don't be deceived. Don't deceive yourself. So we have to be careful that we don't walk in the deception uh, of using earthly wisdom to try to accomplish God's purpose. It won't work. So we go, to those, we go to those around us who exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. We go to the Scriptures. When we don't understand the Scriptures, we go to reliable resources to help us understand. That's our walk. That's how we as Christians make sure, for the best of our ability, that we're not deceiving ourselves. He's going to go on there in verse 18. He says this, If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Okay, first, what is he not saying? He is not saying the less intellect you have, the better off you are as a Christian. Right? He is not saying that. He is not saying if you have intellect, try to pretend like you don't because that will make you a better Christian. He's not saying that either. What he's saying is, is if you as a, or me, us, as an individual, if we believe that we are succeeding in, this, uh, in, in a church setting, in a, in a God's kingdom setting, because we are implementing, implementing this world's wisdom, then we are to become fools. In other words, instead of continuing to rely on and embrace this world's wisdom, we're to act like we are stupid. It literally means dull or thick. We are to act like we don't know those things. Does that make sense? And, and, and not act like, pretend like, oh, I didn't know that, but literally reject it as knowledge, Okay. And so we don't exercise that wisdom. We don't apply the knowledge that we do have as the world would apply it. That's what he's saying there. So he's saying someone who thinks that they're doing this and being successful, they instead need to trade that for God's knowledge, become a fool in the world's ideas, and become wise in God's ideas. Does that make sense? That's what's being communicated here. 
Verse 19 says, For the wisdom of this world is folly, or it's stupidity, with God. For it is written, and he's, he's quoting Job here, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So, number one, the, from Job, that no human being outsmarts God at, at, with wisdom. Number two is this, and this is important. He says that the Lord knows, so this is something that God knows, that it's, it's a fact, the thoughts, uh, that the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile, the, the thoughts of the wise in this world. So people that exercise worldly wisdom, God knows that that's a futile wisdom. The word futile here, it's used quite a bit throughout the scriptures, but it means to be useless or empty or fruitless. So again, our goal as Christians is not to get people to do stuff, right? I mean, obviously, you go, there's always what ifs. And I'm not trying to be a jerk, but let's just let the what ifs behind you. What if a shooter comes in? Yeah, we'll jump on him, okay? I mean, we're not saying, well, the wisdom of God says to all line up and turn the other cheek. No, that's not what that passage means. We're jumping on him. We're doing everything we can to stop that, okay? What if your family's being attacked? I'm kicking the poop out of whoever I have to do it. I mean, that's, so let's lay the what ifs aside. And let's look at the general ideas here. And the, the general ideas that, he, that he's communicating is that if we use worldly wisdom, it will be literally useless. If I manipulate or guilt or force someone into doing something that I think they should do, it is futile. You know what's not futile? Helping someone to know Jesus for themselves and they choosing it. That's not futile. When I was about 18, or I think I was 17 years old, I went to a, uh, it was called the Campus Conference, and it was kind of a church conference. I'm from Southern California, so we drove up to Northern California, and there was this hostel uh, that was right off the Golden Gate Bridge. And we were staying there, and I don't know, there's about 80 of us or so. And I remember uh, this guy, uh, Jim was his name, he was teaching, and he was just t t talking about holiness or whatever. And I was a pretty unruly 17-year-old, and on my way up there, you know, I, for some of you, you may not know what this was, but I had a Walkman. Remember those? Yeah. And uh, they have tapes, which there's, they're about this big, right? And they kind of whine, and they, there's tape in it. And the tape makes the noises, right? Yes. So... I'm listening to it, and on my way up, I'm listening to, like, Red Hot Chili Peppers and Nine Inch Nails and just all the music I listened to growing up until I was about 16. And um, didn't think anything of it. It wasn't even on my radar that that might be a bad idea or anything like that. And I get up there, and this guy's teaching, and he's talking about holiness and, and really kind of focusing on the Lord. I think the, the theme was out of Colossians that, that Christ might be preeminent in our lives and what it would mean that if Christ was the ruler of my life in, in all these different ways. And, um, and so I came up to him after one of his teachings, and I said, you know, man, I, I listen to a lot of this music that's actually kind of generated around drug culture, and I would, didn't use that language, obviously, uh, you know, kind of uh, hatred for authority and these type of things. And, I, you know, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't listen to that. You know what's so cool? Is he didn't go, you know what, you're right. I can't bring those tapes right now. We'll have a tape-burning ceremony. You know, he didn't do it. You know what he said? He goes, he goes, do you think that that's what God's telling you to do? And I go, I, I don't know. I'm not sure, but man, I think so. And he goes, well, you should just do what God tells you to do. And he left. He's like, I'm going to get lunch. I was like, uh, I thought you'd be like a guru and like help me in my way. And 
But as I went to the more and more teachings, I realized God spoke to my heart individually and said, yeah, I need to get rid of that stuff. So it's funny. So I went back and I had tapes and CDs and all this. I went back to San Luis where I grew up, where I was, where I was living. And I, so I went to this place called Cheap Thrills. And it was not what you think. It was CDs and whatnot. And they sold used CDs and, and tapes. And so I went there and I sold all my, my CDs and my tapes. Because this was something that God was doing in my heart. And I got 80 bucks. And so I went up to this Christian store called The Parable, and I bought a Bible with my 80 bucks. And I was so amped about it. I was just, because to me, I just looked at it, I'm like, this is something that God did in my life. I'm so excited. I'm walking with God, and I don't really do things right usually. So I feel like this is something that I really, that God reaped in my life. And I was really amped about it. And so then I went up to one of the pastors of our church. And I said, yeah, I got this Bible. And I told him the story. This is how I got the Bible, blah, blah, blah. And he looked at me, and he goes, I can't believe that. Why didn't you just destroy all the CDs? Now other people are going to buy them. <laughs> and my first, as a godly young 17-year-old, want to just be like, you know? But I walked out of there so dejected and eventually chucked the Bible because I felt so just like, man, I, I dishonored God. I, 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 I was crushed, literally crushed. And... As lame as it might be, it took a couple years to kind of work out of that and kind of realize, like, oh, that guy was wrong. Because he's a pastor, right? He's supposed to be right. <laughs> right? That's, that's what he's supposed to be. He's supposed to be kind and caring and right, and he wasn't. And so it crushed me inside because I really thought that I had dishonored God. I thought that I had gone, you know, done, done some sort of unforgivable, now all my, you know, Nine Inch Nails CDs and tapes were out in the, the, the uh uh, the ether there, and, and it, as if there weren't like five million on the shelves all across America that anybody could buy. But anyway, all I have to say is that one guy just let God work, and it, and it began to change my life. And one guy criticized unknowingly what God was doing, and it, it crushed me. And so we have to be careful as Christians, as people that are pouring into one another's lives, when somebody comes up and just says, you know, hey, I did this thing, if it's not against the Bible, then just say, cool. <laughs> you know? If someone says, God was working in my life and I did this, if someone says, oh man, God, I knew I needed a Bible, so I went into this Christian store and I ripped one off, you go, okay, well, I appreciate the passion for the word. Uh, why don't you tell me where you got it? And uh, I'll go back and, you know, just tell me where you got it. Can I see the price real quick? You know, whatever. It's like, and just go pay for it, you know, and just go, hey, this guy, and then come back and be like, hey, you know what, I appreciate that, but you, you probably don't want to steal. That really, you know, that, this, this would be an opportunity of faith to let Christ provide a Bible for you um, and, and, and kind of play it out. Do you see what I'm saying? There's ways that we can help each other that don't crush each other, and that's ultimately what we're, we're called to do, and that's what Paul is saying here. Don't rely on this world's wisdom. But this, in, in verse 21, he hones it into exactly what he's talking about. So don't let anyone boast in men. So in Paul's application for the church in Corinth, for this specific context, he says this, because all this is true, don't boast in, 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 in men. You know, don't wear Charles Spurgeon T-shirts. You know, Charles Spurgeon was a great guy, I'm sure. He only lived to be like 40 or 53 or whatever it was there in the 1800s in England. And he was criticized by most of his contemporaries because he was too lewd. By lewd, they meant that he used simpler English so that common people could understand him. And, and he, he, God used him. 
but he, the Lord did it, right? No, Spurgeon didn't, never did anything. The Lord did it. All Spurgeon did was say, okay, okay, Lord, you can do that. He's going to go on and further this point. He says, verse 21, so let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ and Christ is God's. So who's he speaking to here? He's speaking to every individual at Corinth, right? So he's not speaking to one person. That's like, there's not like one person, like he's writing to the pastor of Corinth, and he's like, well, it's all yours. No, he's writing to every individual. Every individual is to read this and to comprehend that all these things are for you. So what does that mean? I don't own Paul. I don't own Apollos. I don't own the, this, this land. I don't. So what does it mean that it's yours or that it's mine? What, what is he saying here? He's making the point, you don't elevate men or women, humans, you don't elevate them because all they are are servants of Christ. All they are are people, and they were given for you. It's kind of a, that Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good for those that love God and for those who are called according to his purpose. That God is so mighty and he's so powerful that he's able to work and to use any situation if we let him. We've all experienced rejecting his work in our life. But he's, he's willing and able to use every person, thing, time, past, present, whatever it is, everything in this world, eon, this age. He's able to use it all for us as individuals and corporately. So it's not to make us feel pompous or to feel you know, bigger than our station, but it's to realize that we don't have to elevate any human being, save Jesus. Because, and he's going to go on to say in chapter 4 to the Corinthians, he said, why would you boast about anything that you have? Because everything that you have was given to you. And so it is with us. If you're radically intelligent, you did nothing to get that. Right? It wasn't like in the womb you started your IQ tests and you were like, okay. It wasn't that you somehow willed the neurons in your brain to have more gray matter to store information. It wasn't that you became witty. And you, no, if you're intelligent, it's because you're intelligent and God allowed that or caused that or however you want to look at it to happen. If you're not intelligent, that is perfectly fine too. Intelligence is just intellect. It's just a way to to process things. And some people are better processing intellectual or ideological things than other people are. But that doesn't diminish you. It doesn't make you less. It doesn't mean that, 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 that all these things aren't working out for you. God is just mighty. <laughs> and he loves you. And he's got great things for you. And so he says, I've given all these things. These are all yours. They're for your benefit, for your building up, this whole world. If you think about the original intention, if I could put it that way, in original creation, you have Adam and Eve cruising around, eating vegetables and fruits, basically doing botany naked. That's what you had. They just walked with God in the cool of the day. Isn't that interesting about the original, like the, the, the origination of sin story? What was God doing in that story? By story, I mean account. I'm not calling it fiction. 
It says that he was walking through the garden looking for them to go walking with him. I mean, think about that. We do, we, we reverence God. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings and Jesus will come back someday and there will be judgment. And we recognize that he is all powerful with all authority and he's wonderful and he's marvelous and he's, he's way above us. Our, his life is to ours as ours is to a gnat. We, we freely admit that. But yet when he created humans, he didn't create us to be that. We're not gnats. He created to walk with you in a garden. Think about that. He's actually interested in you. You don't walk with people unless you're interested in them, right? You don't, go, you don't say, hey, do you want to go for a walk with someone that you don't care about? Because you'd be like, that would just be more alone time with you, and I don't want that, so I'm going to avoid that. You ask to go with walks with people, and think about that. God was looking for them. We always frame it as like, you guys are garbage, everybody's garbage, everybody's trash, no one has anybody's value, you're all just pathetic, if the righteous be hardly saved, and we misquote verses, and then we do all this stuff, and it is, it is us clawing after God, and maybe he'll accept you, you puke. You know, that's how the gospel gets put out. But that was never how man was built, was it? Man was built where God went looking for him. That the ruler of the universe with infinite knowledge is interested in what you have to say. It, it, he was interested in the, how they trim the plants. I don't know. Maybe it was like, you know, bonsai or something. He's like, what would you make there? Well, interesting. The fact that God asked Adam, what would you like to name these animals? That's wild. That's so wild. Why would you care what Adam wants to name them? That's one of the reasons why I can't get behind that God sovereignly causes everything to happen. One of many reasons. You're telling me that God sovereignly causes our speech and all these things, and he in a weird way went to Adam and was like, what do you want to name these things, even though I'm going to force you to name them, but I'll just have joy watching you be forced by me to name them? That's a sickness. That's not love. But every interaction we have that we see is, is there judgment? Yeah, there's judgment. When? When people said, no, I'm not going to have you reign over me. And God said, oh, I can't allow that. I can't allow that to permeate the earth, so I'm going to have to destroy that. But even in his destruction of rebellion is to preserve a seed, is to preserve a people to be able to grow that know him. He says, all is yours. Every servant of God is for you. And you know what that means for you? You're for every servant of God. It's a two-way street. We were not saved to hang out by ourselves. This is something, it's embarrassing, but I'm starting to kind of relearn this again. You know, the church has been going about 15 years now, and without sounding like a complete jerk, you guys are pretty awesome, and our church is pretty awesome. Not because of anything I've ever done, but you know, like our, the, the thing we just had with the, with the kids, the VBS, it was so cool. I had almost nothing to do with it. I don't want to admit that. I Like, literally. And, and when I think about what the church was when we, we started with, like, four people to, compared to what we got going on today and the cool stuff that you guys are doing and everything, like, it's amazing. We have an awesome church with awesome people that, that want to follow Jesus in it. And so I don't remember where I was going with that. <laughs> I don't know. God's doing great things. Oh, the fact is that, that, that all of us 
If everyone is given to us for our good, then we're given to everyone else for their good. And, and the, the embarrassing part of it is this. I'm relearning that. I really am. You know, in a lot of ways that my life, you know, when I think about it, a lot of times I can try to sit down and say, I want to budget and make sure I have enough money for my vacations and my, my camping. I want to make sure that I can do this and I want to make sure I can do that. And I, and I can think about like, oh, I want to. But you know what? That's not what our lives are for. Your life is for the person next to you. That's what it's for. And the, the irony and the big twist of all of it is this, that if you live your life that way, it'll be the most fulfilling life you've ever had. That's the thing we don't expect. That's the worldly wisdom that creeps in and says, no, 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 no. You have to live for you. You have to make sure you're happy. You have to make sure you're taken care of. And then you'll find contentment and happiness. When Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 no. I created you for you, for me, and for them. It's not all about you. It's for others. And, and when we give our life away like Christ gave his life away for his kingdom, that's when we will literally live our best life. That's when it will be. Never holding on to it. But the question comes down for us is this. Are we willing even to take a baby step towards that? That's what it boils down to. We don't have to worry about moving to Mexico or you know, Kosovo or fill in said country. We don't have to worry about that until God tells us to do that. So a lot of times we can think, oh, if I gave my life to Christ, I would move away. No, if you gave your life to Christ or if I gave my life to Christ, I'd do things, crazy things like be polite to everyone. I would look upon others and pray for them when they've hurt me rather than looking to destroy them. I would pour out my life for someone who's weeping in front of me. That's what I would do if I started to live radical for Jesus. And maybe someday that'll take you to Kosovo or Nigeria or Mexico or Canada or, you know, whatever. God has great things for you. And I just encourage you, if you're like me and you love yourself, take steps to give yourself up. Whatever steps God's calling you to. And I can't give you those steps. If you're just wondering about those steps, hey, feel free to come up and pray. We'll pray with you. But God has great things for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness and grace. Lord, thank you for your word that convicts us, encourages us, secures us. Lord, thank you for the graciousness of our creation and your calling upon our lives. We pray, Lord, that we would be those that do indeed lay down our life like Jesus did and those that enjoy our life like Jesus did, enjoy our life with you. Lord, we know that there's some sort of balance out there that you've provided all these good things for us to richly enjoy. And at the same time, we're to pick up our cross. So I pray, Lord, that you would, as in each of us as individuals, that you would lead us by your Holy Spirit, that we would be quick to listen, Lord, that we would be slow to speak, that we would be quick to lay down our lives and to serve one another, uh, and slow to reserve ourselves. Lord, you're very good. We appreciate it. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, God bless you guys.